This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Joby pushes certification until 2025. And the AOPA High School Symposium is back in person. Also, Jeppesen has some problems with its data uploads. Personal helicopter company founder Frank Robinson is remembered. Also, we look back on the horrific midair accident in Dallas. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest is Ed Scott. He is a, a jump pilot. I think he what he started the school down in uh, Cape Fear, North Carolina. It's a guy that you caught up with and learned about what it's like to to run a jump operation and fly jump airplanes. We're happy to have Ed Scott with us. Uh, Josh Cochran on the video side and I went down to Cape Fear Regional Jetport, and I actually got to play jump pilot for a day and it was just it was fascinating and ed's going to tell us all about it it's really unique uh he'll tell us a little bit about his history but ed was a longtime parachuter you know sky jumper Mm -hmm. and really was fascinated with aviation and so he turned the corner and decided he wanted to fly the aircraft as well so you played jump pilot for a day does that mean you took a load of jumpers oh i took a load of imaginary jumpers ah, okay, uh, okay. And, but we, we did all the calls and everything where you yeah. flew up to ten thousand five hundred feet over north carolina and opened the door did all the maneuvers it's it's quite interesting to be honest with you and it was a great chance to fly an early model cessna skylane yeah. uh, outfitted for jump pilots um, there's a whole lot to it that ed will tell us a little bit more about but it was great i learned a lot and I, I was just happy to do it. I, I'm ready to be a jump pilot now. Let's do it. Oh, cool. Yeah, for your, uh, I don't know what they make these days, 10 bucks an hour, right? Building time for the airlines. Yeah. I think I think we'll hear a little bit more about that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. All right, let's talk about Joby. Now, we, of course, like to talk about eVTOL every now and then just to give updates on where the technology is and that sort of thing. And, and we always allude to the certification and how challenging that's going to be. And now we have a sense for really how challenging that's going to be because... Joby, which had said it was going to be certified in 2023, is now going to be, they're estimating, 2025. And that's because of a change in the way the FAA is going to make them go about it. Yeah, Ian, we were trying to take a little bit of a, of a dive into this um, as far as the regulations go. And I was a bit confused by it. I'm so happy that you're a former PIC, you know, you know, personnel here. You know, you had a lot of these questions on the phone. But, you know, I fly under Part 23 for aircraft. Yeah. You fly under Part 23, but you also have a helicopter rating. So you fly under, what is that, FAR 21? Once, what is that? Yeah. So each, I think not, this not, is... It's not FAR 21. We actually went into this. Is it 25? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. You're going to make me... I, I'm i not even going to quote it because I can't remember exactly. But uh, 25 is large airplanes, I think. Okay. Yeah. So each... I mean, we don't... I think as pilots talk about this a lot, but each type of aircraft has a section of the regulations under which it's certified. So we always talk about Part 23, right? It's a Part 23 airplane. But that is an airplane. Part 23 is only for light airplanes. Under and I found out a rotorcraft is part 27. So 27, there research. you go, cool. There you yep. go. Yep, so airlines are something different. Jets are something different. You know, helicopters are something different. So previously, what they thought they were going to do, and it, you got to hang with us for a minute because this gets a little nerdy in the certification, but it does matter. It does. Previously, what the FAA thought they were going to be able to do is allow companies like Joby to be certified under the airplane 
rules, so under Part 23, with special conditions. Special conditions are things like uh, like Icon got some special conditions, and, and others. It's the amphibian. Yeah. Icon, the amphibian. Okay, gotcha. LSA. Yeah. Sometimes people can apply for uh, people companies can apply for special conditions that because they have something that doesn't quite fit in the regulations and they need to get through it right okay well you look at an eVTOL and it's like they don't have something a little different the whole thing is different and so it's like where do you go with that yeah. where do you even start is it a giant drone is it a, yeah. a small airship i mean yeah. depends on 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 the design parameters exactly and they're all over the place right uh-huh. so what fa said it is that even if even if, which I don't think they would have, but even if they could have certified under Part 23, the pilots aren't going to be airplane pilots. They're something different. So that's the pilots we're talking about now, too. Besides the aircraft, the pilots have to be certified under one of these regs. Something else, yeah, right. So I think what they're going to do is a different provision of the regulations. It actually is this. I learned this with the story. Tom Horn wrote a good story about this. It's 2117B. B like Bravo. And what that says is, yep, 2117 Bravo. And what that says is, basically, we recognize that whatever it is you're trying to certify it is is weird. Uh Uh-huh. It doesn't exist in the regulations. It's weird. And so what we're going to let you do is cobble together all these pieces of these other regulations. So the helicopter part from the helicopter reg, the airplane part from the airplane reg, and we're going to mash it all together, and that's going to be your certification basis. Oh, so I could pull whatever is appropriate into that regulation, and then kind of tailor each in ta- tailor that to my aircraft or to my pilot skills, or to both. To the aircraft certification. So, for example, if if the eVTOL has a wing, yeah, there's there's going to have to be a stall. Okay, fixed uh, certification fix, fix basis wing type. Yeah, parameter. So yeah, there's going to have to be yeah uh, whatever the reg is that the airplane is able to fly a certain amount into the stall, whatever it is, the eVTOL is going to have to meet that part of it, presumably. Same thing with the rotorcraft. So the rotors are going to have to do a certain thing that uh, you know a regular helicopter rotor does, and all that. So they're going to basically say, okay, we know these things are totally different. So the certification is different, and that is why Joby's saying, now, wait a second, this is going to take us a lot longer to get through. But wait a minute, Ian. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I've got mm-hmm. like three hours uh, helicopter, you know, PIC time. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly a lot more than that, you know, flying around and doing photography from them. But yeah, sure. But handling the stick, minimum minimum time. So am I, does that mean that I'm going to have to maybe perhaps get some kind of a quasi helicopter rating because instead of fixed wing there'll be something else involved perhaps that's exactly right okay. so okay i don't know that's a, i mean it's a really good question is it is there going to be a new type of certification or will they be powered lift maybe okay potentially they could have a powered lift certificate i don't know well we'll have to wait and see i i think um there's lots to be lots to be figured out there still okay well, I'll tell you what, speaking of figuring things out, a good segue here, moving on to the high school symposium that was in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where a lot of teachers figured out that STEM learning was a whole lot of fun. And mm-hmm. the excitement, Ian, I got to tell you, the excitement was there. It was the first time we have had an in-person high school STEM symposium you know, since 2019 because of COVID. You know, a couple of key takeaways I want to just say that. Number one, uh, I, first of all, I was there covering it for photography and a little bit of videography. It was great to see a lot of the teachers that I've met through the years. They've come to AAPA for training. They've also come to AAPA to, you know, to get the curriculum, the grade 9 through 12 curriculum. It's now in 400 schools with 15,000 students and 1,200 classrooms in 43 states. And this is something that I didn't realize, Ian, that, that you can earn a college credit in 63 colleges from 21 states just by going through that program and learning about it. And it's fun. Like the teachers make, yeah, they make wind tunnels. They uh, learn how to do elect- electrical componentry. Mm-hmm. Or even making a sterno, um, I'm going to do my air quotes, a sterno engine, which is a you know, a little sterno can of gas that, that heats up a test tube. And then the test tube goes up and down and like a pendulum, hmm. it's kind of like a piston. And that's to teach some of these STEM curriculum subjects to students. One other thing that's interesting about the um, AOPA high school curriculum is that 
uh, and Ian, you wrote a story a while back called, I think, the six or seven percenters, which we're talking about between six and seven percent of professional pilots were female. Mm-hmm. Well, there are 22 percent uh, average females in these high school STEM classes. Yeah. So that's a step in the right direction, 47 percent non-white. Yeah. So that's an attempt to, to get better diversity into aviation, uh, which we do need. Yeah. So, yeah. So. We've talked in the past about the training that goes on over the summer, right? That uh, teachers will come to AOPA headquarters, learn yeah. how to implement the curriculum in their classes, professional development training. The symposium is different. So tell me a little bit about what's, um, what happens at the symposium. Why even have it? What, what is, what's the whole point? Sure. So the teachers go into different breakout sessions, different rooms where they learn a little bit more about a deep dive either into the curriculum or more about drones. And some teachers are not familiar with aviation at all. Say they're a science teacher and they teach science, but they're going to start to teach aviation. Well, they need to learn a little bit more about the dynamics and of, of lift. Hmm. They need to learn a little bit about that. So there are multiple breakout sessions with, uh, you know, 20 to 30 to even 50 or more teachers in one room at a time. And they're learning about they're learning the best way to teach learning hmm. is really what I would say. Okay. And um, there's also discussion about scholarships. You know, AOPA has uh, literally more than 100 scholarships for students and teachers and for the general public if you're trying to get advanced ratings as well. So there's a lot of um, a lot of elbow rubbing with learning the best way to teach some of the concepts that are taught, maybe some options for the students. Like what would they really do in their career? Where would they go? What kind of jobs would they get? Not necessarily flying or maintenance position jobs, but you know, th- there's a whole world out there that involves aviation and different facets. Yeah of careers in aviation. So the breakout sessions are are about that. Every year there are a couple of keynote speakers. This year we had we had several and by the way, the host was Swain Martin, mm-hmm. someone that that you probably have talked to for a, a pilot interview. Yeah. Yeah, Swain is an I mean most people probably have seen his channel. Just a super super impressive person. He's you know, you can say what you will about people who proliferate on social media and uh, through YouTube channels and things like that. But Swain is the real deal. I was super impressed. This is the kid who had a goal when he was very young, set out a plan, nailed the plan exactly. And a lot of his videos are all about giving back to the community. I mean, he really is interested in giving back to the community. Yeah. And he um, he's an airline pilot now. He's mm-hmm. a first officer. Yeah, for a major. Yeah. So that's good. And, and a young person. So that's, yeah. uh, you know, doubly cool. We had a, a presentation by travel media personality and pilot Kelly Edwards. Mm-hmm. Kelly does a lot of travel and adventure travel and explained to her. Now, she's a, a, a relatively young African-American female. And so she was explaining how difficult it was for her to get involved in aviation because mm-hmm. she didn't really have any role models. Yeah, right. No one, no one in her family, right. No one in her family flew, but she explained to the crowd in the general session, uh, just how emboldened she was after she got her pilot certificate and how much of a difference that made to her in her life. So, and that is something I want to just speak about that for a minute to, to our listeners and to our viewers is that, you know, aviation brings more to the table than just piloting an aircraft. I think it helps us with critical thinking skills and decision-making that will help us in other facets of life. I I think our listeners might agree, but I know that for me, it's really helped. Even my daughter, Lauren, she's in second year college right now and having a little bit of glider training, sailplane training, you know, I constantly tell her, look, Lauren, if you think you can't do this one thing, remember you've landed a glider before, you know, and you never knew how to do that. So I think it brings a lot to the table and the teachers, the other thing, Ian, I must be honest with you, a lot of the teachers get so psyched about teaching this that they start to pursue aviation themselves. Absolutely. And I think it's it's also important to note that with these symposiums that and the curriculum in general, I mean the the obviously it's targeted towards teachers, administrators as a way to reach students and get them exposed to aviation. But just being a pilot, you can really help in your community because you can go to the school, you can engage your local school administration or teachers 
you can be that champion to get it. And so you can go to the symposium and get ideas on how to do that and really get jazzed up. You can sponsor a teacher to go to the symposium or whatever. There's all sorts of other ways to, to get involved there, even if you're not into education directly. Absolutely. Before we wrap it up and move on, I just wanted to, uh, to uh, take our hats off to FedEx, who hosted us for about mm-hmm. six hours the other day. We learned a lot about their air operation. Basically, they have an air force, you know, which is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, huge. Uh, yep. And then um, we also had Ricky Arnold come talk to us. Ricky Arnold, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Astro underscore Ricky. Ricky is an astronaut, and he's been aboard the the space shuttle, and he's been aboard the space station. And he actually, you know, at at a time, if you can recall, Ian, the U.S. wasn't able to launch humans into space, so we relied on our our Russian on Russian Partners, yeah. rocketry. Mm-hmm. And Ricky has some great stories to tell about you know landing in the middle of the desert, you know, uh, in cool. in a in a you know, an aircraft capsule. Um, but he Neat. was excellent and a great guest. Uh, Cindy Hasselbring, who also works at NASA as an educator, uh, brought him. And Ian, you covered the very first one of these high school STEM symposiums. Yeah, right. Yeah, way back. Yep. It's grown quite a bit. <laughs> it's very cool. Indeed. All right, good. So, Dave, I'm glad you were able to go to that. Something else that's affected you recently is the Jeppesen outage. Now, I know yeah. this got some play kind of over the weekend. Their Jeppesen had an issue with their servers, and it affected everything from the website to the database, the ability to grab new database updates, and to even purchase products in your case. That's right. And I guess I should update our listeners. Not only are you an aircraft owner, Ian, but now I am too. Congrats. That's awesome. After after looking for a while, actually, uh, it's my brother, Martin, has got, he's he's the money man in this operation, but I located (laughs) a. In the world, yeah. Yes. I located a really cherry tri pacer, 1953 tri pacer out in Hood River at the uh, Western Antique Aeroplane and Automobile Museum. Thanks very much to Terry Brandt and. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brian Prang of uh, of Tac Aero, but here's the thing: that aircraft has an older VFR GPS. It's a Garmin 250 XL. It doesn't have a data card. It's a it's a GPS mm. comm unit. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for a data card so I could then get the database from Garmin and have that airplane use the internal panel mounted GPS for you know situational awareness. Mm-hmm. I went over the uh, over the past few days or so I, I was trying to buy the data card which you can only get from from Jeppesen. Yeah. And it was you couldn't even log in to the website. I had previously had a login so back when I had my Mooney I had to get some databases. So I could not log in. I was stuck. Uh, couldn't get the card, couldn't get the database. Miraculously, the night before last, it started to work again. So I ordered that card and I ordered that USA database. But could you imagine, Ian, if you're a flight operation, say you are, have a fleet of aircraft and you need yeah. to update your your data and mm-hmm. you can't log in and update that. I mean, this is to me, this is like a major problem. Yeah, it really is. And even now, you know, we're just now looking at the website. And so I'll read what's going on. So this started November 2nd. Uh It says on November 2nd, Jeppesen experienced a cyber incident. Now they're not saying it's a hacking or outside. We don't know for sure, Uh although you could obviously assume that. Jeppesen experienced a cyber incident affecting certain products and services. We immediately initiated an incident response process and are working to reactivate individual products to our hosted production environment yeah we continue to work to restore full functionality to all of our products and services if you need support please reach out to us at support.jepson.com so that's front and center on their website still now even a couple weeks later so clearly they're still having some some issues getting back up and running yeah and the other thing to really think about and i swear i I really didn't put this together for the longest time i like personally like me like a lot of other folks in the GPS world, I mean, I'm I'm all in on GPS. I'm a ForeFlight mm-hmm. or a Garmin Pilot and panel-mounted GPS. And, and when I'm looking to replace my panel-mounted GPS to maybe an IFR unit, I wasn't even thinking about VORs. I'm like, hey, man, that is so yesterday, you know. Yeah. But Ian, seriously, if yeah. you can't update your database and you can't rely on GPS – then we have to go to the MON network of VORs mm-hmm. that you and I were, were starting to do a little research on. 
and there's a minimal operational network yeah. of VORs uh, here that the government does maintain. I think the idea is that you could, you're supposed to be within 100 miles of a VOR so that you can navigate if you don't have GPS navigation. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and it was not front of the mind to me until just no. now. No, I mean, you can, I mean, this is just one of the many scenarios you can imagine where you, you are going to need VORs. I mean, it could be uh, a satellite outage. It could be a satellite hack. It could be an equipment outage on your airplanes. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that backup is yeah very cr critically important. I totally agree. Well, I, I'm, they're still, like you said, they're still not saying what exactly happened, mm -hmm. nor do I think we will ever get to the bottom of this. Um, no, I'm sure not. Yeah. <laughs> but the I'm cyber sure incident did affect a lot of people. And yep. um, additional details will, will be forthcoming soon. So let's keep an eye on that. And don't forget that Boeing owns Jeppesen and also ForeFlight. So maybe it's not a bad idea to think about uh, uh, VORs as a backup in yeah, the right. long run anyway. I don't <laughs> that's know. A, yeah, it's a good point. And we'll be right back. All right, David, I want to talk about Frank Robinson. Frank certified started Robinson Helicopter, just a, a complete icon in the rotorcraft industry, ran that company for decades, has been out of it since about 2010, and Frank passed away over the weekend. He was 92 years old. Yeah, Ian, I wanted to kind of um, talk to you about that too, because Frank was, he, he, he really started that whole genre mm -hmm. of, um, of personal, you know, small personal helicopters, the R-22, which is a great platform to learn in. I learned uh, in our, I've been in R-22 for actually for a week straight. I covered floods out of a R-22 mm. uh, in Georgia. I wasn't the pilot, but I was a, you know, uh, a photographer. But you've written a little bit more about, about Frank Robinson. And, and he really did pioneer that part of personal helicopter aviation. Yeah. And now we know that the Robinson helicopters, have, there's some special procedures you have to learn to go through and, and, and fly those safely. But mm -hmm. I believe you know a lot more about that than I do. I, I'd like, love to hear your take on that. Yeah, well, Frank was, I mean, some of that comes because the design fits Frank's ethos perfectly. From the beginning, he only wanted to design the helicopter. It was going to be lightweight, not complex, and low in cost. And he succeeded. He got it through the design phase, the idea phase, through certification, production. I mean, when you just step back from it and think about that and how in the modern era, it's virtually unheard of. You know, you can have people who, so the uh, Alan and Dale Klatmeyer, right? With Cirrus. Right. They made it through certification and to production. They hired engineers to create the Cirrus. So they had an idea. And I think they're obviously were very heavily involved, but it was, they, they hired engineers. Frank basically, he worked on this initially on his off time in his living room. That's and crazy. Then, and then when he decided to go for it, so he pitched this idea of a small personal helicopter to Hughes and to Bell when he worked for them back in the day. Uh -huh. They, of course, had zero interest in it. He quit his job, set up a drafting table in the family living room. How about he, that? Yeah, he yeah. hired a couple of engineers to help, but of course he was the guy. Kurt, his son, who now runs the company, tells the story about the reason the R-22 tail rotor is the size that it is is because that's the biggest thing that would fit in the family oven because he was oh, making no parts at home. Yeah. Oh, how I mean, cool. It's amazing. That is so um, wild. It's a great story. And come on, yeah. man. It's like so, mom and pop. It's the real I mean, deal. To the max, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And did things like his neighbors got upset because they were like, well, you're running a business out of the house. And it, well, he was, right? He was trying to develop this helicopter. And so it's like he had to hang the engine from the ceiling in the garage. And I mean, all these things, I mean, it's incredible what they did. But then to get it certification, that's hard enough. But to transition to production, it just doesn't happen. I mean, people just don't make it. You know, Icon, it took him years to do it. Kirk was in charge. He so he basically made it to ASTM acceptance. Now, that's not even certification. Did not make it through the production phase. Couldn't transition to production. And that's very common. You'll find that engineers will make it to the certification. They'll make it through certification, but then can't transition. And they transitioned. And you know, Tom Haynes was telling me the story that Frank had given him a tour of the of the factory. It's an incredible factory there in Torrance, California. It's in Torrance, Torrance California. That's a, right, not not far from where Honda motorcycles oh, are, cool. not far from SpaceX. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's an incredible facility. They are very vertically integrated. So today, where Boeing is really an assembler, they'll bring parts in from all over the world and put them together. Robinson makes 
almost everything. I, you know, they buy the avionics, they buy the engines, and that's it. It's like, imagine if Cessna made their own propellers in Wichita, and that's what they do. The, Robinson does it all. They make their own, you know, windshields, all of it, interiors. So Frank was given Tom a tour, and they have this area, because they export a lot of these helicopters, and uh, they have this area where they prep them for shipping, and there's all these big wooden crates, and Tom says, you know, hey, do you own the forest, too, you know, that the crates come from? Oh, because there's so many crates. No, yeah, and it's like they're so vertically integrated, and, and Frank says... Well, no, but that's a good idea, right? So it's like, yeah, he even wanted to own the forest where they, they got the wood for the crates. So they, it's, um, it's just a, an incredible company, uh, an incredible legacy. I mean, you mentioned the, the special conditions. There are special conditions, and, and sometimes R22s in particular take some heat because they are so lightweight. They have a low rotor yeah. inertia and mass pumping and everything else. But And a lot of that is because Frank had this sort of uncompromising idea of what the helicopter was going to be, and he did it. He was obsessed about those ideas, and and I think it's an amazing helicopter. And and a lot of people, because of the lower cost, were able to learn to fly helicopters where they wouldn't have otherwise been able to because of cost. And so, um, yeah. Speaking of cost, speaking of cost, I back when I was looking at all options for for aviation as far as you know fixed wing, and even I thought about rotorcraft for a while. Mm -hmm. So a nineteen eight. I'm looking in uh, controller.com. There's a nineteen eighty eight R twenty two. 105,000 bucks. Yeah. As relatively new model as far out, as but yeah. Well, it could yeah. P potentially, yes. Mm -hmm. Um but nonetheless, that price is not ridiculous. Uh, there's a um a 2005 model for 151,000 and get this Ian, a brand new Robinson R22 for sale, brand new mm -hmm. 2023 model, $345,000. Now, yeah. Yes, that's more than you know, thirty or forty or fifty grand that a lot of us were would be hoping for. But right. that's for less a than a Cessna. But it's less than a Cessna one seventy two, yes. man. Yeah, so it's, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible how how affordable. Well, relatively affordable they are when you consider the costs in aviation. I mean, on R forty four, I don't know what the current price is. Let's call it maybe four fifty five hundred. And they're very well made. They have great performance. So we got yeah, the we got the light coming yeah. engine. It yeah, it's got a, you know you know what the engine is going to be. So the R sixty six the turbine for less than a million when it came out. So yeah, it's a, it's an incredible legacy, incredible company, and it, it's it's uh, Kurt runs it really well. Now I think there's other family involved as well, but Frank was the vision behind it and uh, an icon of aviation really. Gotcha. Well, I'll tell you what. Moving on from from Frank Robinson, we do have to touch base with uh, probably the aviation talker story of, of the week so far. And that's that sad uh, crash over with the Warbirds in Dallas, the B-17 and the P-63. So, Ian, what do you know about that? What, what have we learned so far? Yeah, I tend not to follow crashes as closely, I think, as some people do, just because I find it a little morbid, maybe. I mean, I'll read analysis of trends and things like that but I, I try not to otherwise just because I think it's you know well, like I said it's morbid this accident in particular there was lots of video lots of different angles I'm sure people have seen it I don't want to see it but it you just can't avoid it it's terrible to watch terrible for those uh, six people and their families who died in the accident but I think you know I, the reason that we should be talking about it today is Richard McSpadden of the Air Safety Institute They've been doing these early analysis videos. This has become a trend if you're if you're on YouTube, where people a lot of times with zero information and, and zero credentials get on and talk about, oh, well, this accident happened because of this. And they'll have no idea. So ASI started doing these early analysis as a way to bring some level-headedness to the whole game. Well, and, some experience to yes. the game. Folks who really know what they're talking about. Yeah. And this one in yeah. particular, I I was I just think Really, everybody should go watch this because I learned so much about air shows, how they deconflicted air shows, what the FAA's responsibility is for this, what CAF's responsibility is. Uh, it's just uh, the stuff that because he was a former commander of the flight, uh, the Thunderbirds and the flight lead, I, it's unbelievable the amount of information he has in this video. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, Richard McSpadden really walks us through it. He talked a little bit about the off crowd wind in that situation. The weather was good. The sun angle was low. That could also have been a factor, but he, he uh, supposes in this case it might not have been. So the conditions were unlikely to cause that that crash. Folks flying for the CAF, they have to have a lot 
and I mean a lot of experience and proficiency. So not just experience, but recent proficiency. Yes. So Richard concentrated a little bit more on the human factors, uh, things like the show lines. Uh, he mentioned that enforcement of the show line, which is the line in the sky that the show performers um, fly on, he said it is sacrosanct to blow that that show line. Like mm-hmm. you just don't go past where you're supposed to be. Yep. Um, that was to me was a key takeaway. And I'll say this one other thing is that Richard has mentioned this before on a couple of other midairs that there's a concept called doing a belly check. So when your airplane is you're in a turn, typically he was talking about it from a sort of a, a base to final turn mm-hmm. where the belly of the aircraft is up in the air. It blocks your view of anything else typically to the right if you're in a left turn. Yeah. So we wonder, Richard wonders, if that might have uh, been a factor uh, in this terrible crash as well. Yeah. So that belly check is something you can do and I can do. In fact, you and I flew together recently together, and we, we did one of those. Yeah, yep. And that's the idea is that you, exactly like you said, you're turning from downwind to crosswind. You level the wings for a bit. You look upstream a little bit. At final, make sure final's clear, and then you turn again on final. You don't do this continuous descending turn where you're completely blind to the traffic coming in on final. So you turn and, and level out for just a couple of seconds and then continue the turn yep. so that you can see what's out there and avoid any kind of other obstructions or, or other aircraft, for mm-hmm. that matter. Yeah. And it's just better situational awareness. So instead of a constant turn, turn, level, turn. Yeah. Yeah, so you brought up uh, one of the things that Richard said, and I think he's right, that, that we can all take away from this accident. A lot of things don't won't apply to your or my everyday flying. Even He doesn't even really get into formation flying and, and how that may have played a factor because I guess these were show passes. They weren't. It's not like the Cobra was rejoining with the B-17 or anything like that. But yes, you're right. Seeing a void around the airport, how that blind spots, that's the kind of stuff that we can all really learn from this. Otherwise, if you're seeing this accident everywhere and you just want to know, okay, what what do we think may have happened? This, he doesn't get into a lot of speculation about, oh, well, you know, this may have happened and this may have happened and this may have happened. It's based on what we know to this point. And then he talks a lot about what the NTSB is probably going to have to look into. And so, like I said, level-headed approach to it. Yeah, I really enjoy learning from these uh, early analysis videos. That I do think that there are... Lately, there have been several key takeaways that we could all use uh, to be better pilots. And it is a sad thing. I, I really feel for the families of the pilots, but also for the air show attendees that were there. Something similar happened at Peachtree Cab Airport, close to my, you know, home in Atlanta, and it was a, a sad situation there too. So, and that was at an air show. So it's not good for the folks uh, watching. The other thing is that when you tend to have these high-profile events, you know the general public doesn't really understand, and they'll they'll start to suppose different things, and it negatively affects us as pilots. But we but we are always trying to learn. We're trying to learn from things. We want to avoid situations when we can. And really, that that belly turn, that belly check, that could be an interesting thing to look at, and also the visibility that the pilot in the P sixty three had. Yeah, that's right. Okay, David. Hey, want to move on, bring on our guest, Ed, who you had a great time flying with and, and learning from. And some of the, there's another world we most of us don't know a whole lot about, which is uh, parachute jumping. Those, those several easy steps, you know, that we need to keep in mind, and how do we get out of this Cessna 182? Sure. So, uh, in the 182, especially a jump plane, you take off thinking that the the easiest way out of that airplane is the the large jump door, yep. right? So that's more than likely going to be your easiest egress route, okay. right? But you've got to be ready to open that door in the event you decide to leave, right? And again, we're talking about a probable catastrophic situation. So the first step is to either, if the door is not open, to reach over and open that door or whichever door you decide you're going to use. Once you've got an opening established, uh, you reach up, 
and just get rid of your headset off your head, get it out of the way. I, I just plan to throw it up on the panel, okay. right? Uh, at the same time, I'm reaching down and unfastening the seatbelt with, with my right, right hand. hand. Yep. Okay. Left hand is headset, right hand is the seatbelt. Yep. Then I'm free, right? Okay. I've yep. still got to make my way to the door, though. So I orient toward the jump door. I plan to grab the door frame on each side with my left and right hands and help pull myself to the door and then through the door and then push myself out the door as I get out. Your goal really is simple, and that's to just get away from the airplane. So I'm not worried about where I'm aiming when I leave the airplane, and I'm not worried about my body position or hitting a freefall position. I'm just worried about getting out and away from the airplane. Okay. As soon as I do, I'm looking for my ripcord, locking my thumbs, punch and pull with my legs together. Now let's talk a little bit about being a, a jump pilot, a, a commercial pilot with skydivers in the aircraft. You have about 1,200 jumps yourself mm -hmm. at least. How did you decide to go from jumping out of an aircraft to piloting an aircraft for other skydivers? Right. Well, so um, I started skydiving in college at a college club, but I liked every aspect of being out at the airport, right? I liked being around pilots, around airplanes. So I actually uh, transferred colleges and uh, got a degree in aviation management from Middle Tennessee State with the aim of, of learning to fly as well. So later on in life, uh, still skydiving, but I had uh, become a private pilot and then a commercial pilot, instrument rated. And uh, one day I got a call from a nearby drop zone. They needed a 182 pilot and they heard I had a commercial certificate and asked if I would uh, be agreeable to flying on weekends there, and, and I was. So I flew about uh, two seasons at a drop zone in Pennsylvania, weekends only, okay. but getting a lot of uh, flight time, getting a little bit of pay, uh, but a lot of flight time, uh, and really coming to enjoy it. And you already knew how to don the parachute, you knew the egress procedure, so you kind of were ahead of the rest of the class, really. Sure, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Now later, um, as I began working for the U.S. Parachute Association, uh, one, part of my job was to work very closely with drop zone owners and operators who were having problems with maybe airport access, that sort of thing. And very early in my career with USPA, I was working with a drop zone owner in Florida, trying to improve his situation. He wanted to move on to an airport. And then one weekend I heard that he was up uh, in his uh, Cessna putting out students at 3,000 feet with a brand new jump pilot in the left seat. That pilot got too slow on jump run and the airplane stalled. A couple of jumpers got out, but as it went into a spin, the rest of them did not get out, including the owner of the drop zone and the airplane. So there were several fatalities, okay. but uh, I noted that it was a brand new jump pilot. And that stuck with me for years when I realized that there was, there was room for formal training for Cessna 182 jump pilots. Oh, I see. And that's when I decided to uh, engage in that once I retired from USPA at the end of 2020. So you really were looking to further the sport of skydiving while also providing some safety to newer pilots. Yes, yeah. The, the usual route for most jump pilots, as the route I took, was uh, a drop zone, finding a new commercial pilot, asking if they wanted to fly, uh, I got maybe an hour of ground school, and then I went up and did one simulated jump flight, and I was handed the keys and told to start flying jumpers. There was a lot I didn't know. Uh, I survived, obviously, and I learned a lot along the way, but that's still the case today, is there's no formal school until jumpers away, and I'm, I'm hoping to encourage more drop zone owners to uh, get their pilots some initial training before they start flying. Let's talk a brief moment about Jumpers Away and the, the course for pilots. Now that, that's a little bit more than $300, but we're looking at about 20 hours, right, in a Cessna 182. Yes. And it's over several different days. Can, can you just go over the basics of that? Really? Sure. The basic course is four days where the uh, client, the, the candidate, flies 20 hours as PIC in the actual jump plane. Uh, they fly the left seat, and over the four days, we do a whole series of simulated jump runs up to 12,000 feet. So we're practicing the, uh, the power settings and air speeds for climb, 
the settings, procedures to level off on jump run, how to open the jump door, how to close the jump door, and then do the expedited descent coming down. So we do a lot of simulations, and then I start throwing in abnormal and emergency procedures as well, so that um, at the f end of the fourth day, they've got 20 hours of all types of simulated jump flying, and uh, they're good to go at any drop zone that wants to hire a 182 pilot. And uh, about how many loads can a commercial jump pilot expect to perform in an average day? Sure. Or is there no limit? Well, my record uh, was 16 loads in a day. Oh, my Lord. Uh, that was uh, from sunup to sundown. Uh, and that was a very busy day. Only stopping to fuel the airplane and, and, and get a drink. Yeah. I've heard of uh, 182 pilots flying even more loads than that. But you can count on 10 to 12 to 15 or 16 loads a day at, at a busy drop zone. It, it depends on the volume at that drop zone, okay. but that's certainly possible. How does it make you feel when you're pilot in command and you've got your skydivers here, many of whom are gonna skydive as a tandem jump for the first time because a relative bought them, something they've always wanted to do as right. a gift. How does it make you feel when you see them enjoying themselves? Well, um, I, it feels good to see people enjoying themselves skydiving. It feels good to see people make what they thought was going to be their one and only jump, uh -huh. and then they decide after they land that they're going to come back and make more jumps and maybe get into skydiving. But what really makes me feel good is to just know that I've given them a safe professional flight to altitude in a smooth way of flying so that they don't even have to think about the flight or the risk of the flight. They've just got to think about the jump. And to me, that, that's really the most satisfying part. And that's what I try to instill in all of the jump pilot candidates that come through my school, is that every skydiver deserves a safe professional pilot. Uh, and that's what we like to deliver. What's the hardest thing about being a jump pilot? There are some long, hot days, uh, I can tell you. And uh, when you're turning loads uh, and only stopping to fuel the airplane, it can take a lot out of you. You gotta be in, in some good shape. You gotta make sure you hydrate all day long. Make sure you eat well as well. But at the end of the day, it's just very satisfying to again know that you were part of a team, including the tandem instructors and all the staff at the drop zone, and satisfying the desires of people who wanted to experience jump at least one time, uh, and, and you made sure they did it safely. So Ed, as we're flying around in the national airspace system, what is it important for pilots to listen for as they are flying in and around drop zones. Sure. Well, if, uh, if you've got flight following, then the uh, ATC facility that you're talking to, if you're flying near an active drop zone, uh, jump pilots are required to advise controllers up to one or two minutes prior to the actual jump, every time. That's a requirement. So when the controller gets, gets the advisory of one minute to jump, over Cape Fear here, then the controller will broadcast on his frequency, attention all aircraft, vicinity of Cape Fear, parachute jumping in one minute from 10,000 feet and below, right? So you should listen for that. And that's a, another important reason to get flight following uh, if you're doing a cross country. Likewise, you can uh, call an ATC facility uh, that has the jurisdiction of the airspace over or in the vicinity of a drop zone and simply ask them if parachuting is going on that day and, and if they know when the next jump is. And that they should be able to tell you that. The other thing that's at work is the jump pilot will also always broadcast on the CTAF what's going on. So after we drop, or actually prior to dropping, we'll make a broadcast on CTAF, hey, Cape Fear traffic uh, parachutes in two minutes over Cape Fear, right? And then after the jumpers go away, uh, we'll also broadcast that. Cape Fear traffic, uh, jumpers away over Cape Fear, 10,000 feet and below. So anybody who's in the pattern or dialed into CTAF as they're coming into the airport would hear those sorts of broadcasts. And of course, uh, they're certainly welcome to contact the jump plane on CTAF and ask for an update. You know, how, how many parachutes are in the air or have the par parachutes landed yet? Uh, and we'd be happy to advise them. We talked about what was the most rewarding thing for you as a, as a jump pilot. Uh, what's the most rewarding thing for you as a jump pilot instructor? Well, I like the win-win that is going on. Uh, drop zones are getting trained pilots 
instead of getting new commercial pilots who have no training and need all the training. Uh, that frees the drop zone up to, to continue operations. They don't have to dedicate an airplane and a chief pilot or an instructor to training a new jump pilot. So the drop zone is getting a win and the, um, the commercial pilot's getting a win. He's getting a job at under 500 hours total time. It pays and he's uh, putting um, flight time in his logbook and he's having a, a load of fun doing it because the, the skydiving crowd is just really one big welcoming family and uh, jump pilots become a part of that. It's a whole culture and it, they're just fun, exciting, uh, energetic people to be around. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the, the Cessna 182 as it pertains to being a really good jump aircraft for skydivers. Now, yeah. What is the difference between a, a jump 182 and a traditional Cessna 182. Right. So almost from inception, when the first 182 was built in 1956, it became just simply a great jump plane. It's got enough power to carry a pilot and four skydivers high enough uh, for their liking, 11, 12, sometimes 13,000 feet. Uh, it can haul a load, and the configuration of the airplane is just perfect. Once you modify the, the right cabin door so that instead of being hinged on the side and opening to the side, you hinge it on the top and open it vertically against the wing, then you add a jump step to the airplane. How wide is that jump step? Oh, that's um, a good eight inches wide. Uh -huh. Plenty of room to put your feet on as, yeah. you, as you climb out. And it's pretty long. It goes from the strut to over the wheel. Yeah. So it's, uh, it looks like about 18 inches long yeah and it's pretty and it's wide enough for a stable foot platform absolutely so the combination of the door and the step allows skydivers to easily get out and present themselves to the air and then leave the airplane in a, in a stable position so it's just it's always been a great jump plane and it continues today it's still the most populous jump plane in the u.s now some of these aircraft have uh, droop wingtips what does that give us uh-huh well, uh, most of them have the wing extensions that are supplied by Wing X, okay. right? That adds uh, three feet aside or about six feet of wing length. What that does importantly for the early model 182s is it increases the max takeoff weight by 300 pounds. So instead of this aircraft being limited to 2,650 pounds, it can now take off with 2,950 pounds, uh, which is huge. Yeah. Make sure even with heavy skydivers, you can still add enough fuel to that airplane to take off still under the max takeoff weight. That makes sense. So it actually gives us at least one more person, FAA regulation, one more person, or like 1.5 more people, that 300 pounds. Right, yep. And um, the other thing that I'm noticing is some of the interiors are a little bit, I'll, I'll call it austere. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, so when you convert a 182 to a jump plane, uh, one of your goals is to just lighten it right uh -huh. because it's in the business of climbing at the best rate of climb to jump altitude so one way of lightening it um, in addition to taking out any unused radios or equipment is to also take out the interior of the aircraft as well as the, the all the seats except the pilot's seat so uh, that that's one side effect of removing the interior it it, it looks very basic very austere as you say exactly what else can you tell us about uh, Jumpers Away that would encourage other folks to come down here to Cape Fear? Well, commercial pilots who want to break into the industry, right? They, they want a flying job that pays wow. something. And again, there's lots of opportunities flying skydivers for drop zones once you get a little bit of experience. So consider taking a Jumpers Away course. Yeah, it, it costs, but once you graduate, I help place you at a drop zone Having worked for 24 years with the U.S. Parachute Association, I know many of the drop zone owners around the country. And in fact, several have begun calling me and asking, do I have a recent graduate uh, because they need a pilot? Oh, wow. So come take a Jumpers Away course, and then let me help you find a drop zone uh, in the state or the region where you want to work, and let's get you flying. All right, so 
David, the reason I asked you if you actually let the jumpers out is because I've always been fascinated by the idea of a one e- jumping out of a 182 and what that's like for the pilot. Yeah. Does it, do you get this like massive bump and shake and like, what, you know, do you shoot up a hundred feet? I mean, what, you know, what's it like when you stay in the airplane? Well, I'll tell you what, when you're staying in the airplane where you're the pilot in command, you're in that left seat for the first thing you've got to do to let the jumpers out is hard left rudder and then that opens the door you unlatch the the right side door and it opens vertically ian so it flips open the airstream keeps it up Uh, um, the jumpers have a little steel platform that they're on one by one and they can hang on to the strut at the same time and kind of crowd that platform now i didn't have the weight shift of of folks shuffling around and uh, then jumping out except for uh, young josh cochran was you know, on the floor of the aircraft in the back, <laughs> in the back yeah. doing video yeah. and stuff of us. But uh, but um, I could imagine that center of gravity changes a little bit as the aircraft gets lightened, mm-hmm. lightened up. But the coolest thing for me, and I got to say, this is just bizarre. You know, the, then Ed goes, all right, David, now we're doing a descending spiral turn. We need to be back at the airport. You know, so turn away from the, the jumpers. And yeah. because that's a protected airspace area. Mm-hmm. And I mean... Ian, we were going down uh, 2,000 feet a minute if it, if it was one foot a minute. Was, uh, I mean, it was pretty darn fast, and you want to keep that engine happy and warm. So you're, you, it's not like you pull it back to, to no thrust. You know, you're still, hmm. you still got a pretty hefty amount of throttle manifold pressure in there. So it's pretty neat. It's an interesting technique. There's a lot more to it. And also, as a pilot, you have to wear a parachute. So you have to learn how to egress in a parachute if it ever came to that as well. All right, David, that's so cool. And I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk, wherever you get your podcasts, and also find us on YouTube. All right, we'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.